No, no, no. Jesus knew exactly what was going on. He always does. He always does. I didn't say he always did. He even does today. Listen to Jesus on that day. As the crowd cheered, as the crowd celebrated, Luke chapter 19 tells us what Jesus knew. It says, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept. Jesus, when he saw Jerusalem, when he saw God's people, the ones who have been given the oracles of God, Romans says, the ones who were supposed to be a light to the world, when he saw them, he wept. He broke into tears. Filled with compassion, he cried over the people. And in case you're wondering why, Luke records for us exactly why. He said, would that you, speaking to Jerusalem now in a large sense, speaking over all of God's people, the Jewish people, he said, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. As they cried that this one would bring them peace. He said, would that you'd know what would bring you peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will be set up as a barricade around you and surround you and tear you down to the ground, you and your children. You see, Jesus knew that they were going to reject Him. Jesus knew that they would reject His leadership in their life. How did He know that? Well, because He made us and He knows us. He knows our heart. He knows that apart from Christ, we are desperately wicked. And He knew that when man or women, when people face Christ, their natural inclination is to reject Him. And to say, I don't want Him. And He knew that they would do that. And their rejection would look like a cross. But they were confused that day. But Jesus was not. And I don't want us to be confused. As we, as we think about Easter and that's this season and the Passion Week, I don't want us to be confused about what the cross means and what it means to look to the cross. Now, you made a confused look, right? Remember your confused look? There's been some times in my life I've been very confused. And you know, when you're confused, you make really bad decisions. When I was a youth pastor, I was apparently pretty confused and would do some pretty stupid things over the years. I mean, things that, you know, my mom always told me not to do. It seems like I ended up doing them as a youth pastor. And the problem was I'd have like a hundred kids following behind me, you know, watching it and laughing. Now, I remember one of the things that we did that makes no sense is we made a decision, and some of you were there, we made a decision that for 30 hours, we would not eat and we would not sleep, okay? Great idea, right? 30 hours, no eating, no sleeping. Sounds like a great plan. Now, we did have some other sort of ulterior motives. We called it a 30-hour family, trying to understand that there are people all over the world who don't have food to eat, don't have water to drink, and we were trying to teach that lesson. But we went 30 hours without eating, without sleeping. Now, let me tell you, Lowell gets cranky when he doesn't have food, okay? He really, really does. And even worse than that is sleep. Have you ever lost sleep for a long period of time? 
man, you make some bad decisions when you're without sleep. Well, on this particular night, my wife and I were there, and we had been 30 hours without, well, probably at this point, 24 hours without eating, without sleeping. And Nancy and I, we were, you know, we were old. We were like 30 then, you know? And so we got away from all the rest of the teenagers and went down into my office there in the church and climbed underneath the desk of my office and snuggled up together and went to sleep. Okay, they're on the floor. There's teenagers everywhere. Now relax, there were adults in charge, okay? There was all kinds of things. You had it, right, Randy? You were in charge. Everything was taken care of. Now Randy's hating me because he didn't know this potentially. But Nancy and I, he said just a little bit, Nancy and I snuck off with everybody else. I just had to get some sleep. I was tired and I was hungry. And when I'm hungry, I get cranky and then I really want to sleep. So that's what we did. So there we are, you know, all snuggled up in the comfort underneath my desk, okay? Sound knocked out asleep. And all of a sudden, there was somebody breaking in the house. I knew it. I could hear them. And I sat up real quick, and I'm looking around for my gun. Because I've got to find my gun. Because somebody's breaking in the house and they're going to hurt the kids. And so I'm running around looking for my gun in the corner and looking over here for my, for my shotgun. And I realized, I'm in my office. What am I doing? Here's what had happened. I'd fallen asleep there on my floor of my office. And one of my good friends, you know, one of those guys that's got your back. You know, the kind of guy I'm talking about, a, you know, like a battle buddy that's there for you when the bullets fly. He'll lay down his life for you. He knew I was asleep. So this is what they did. They snuck up into the children's church closet and got all these crazy instruments, cymbals, xylophones, triangles, and they snuck down and tiptoed into my office where my wife and I are there cuddled up asleep. And this guy named Buck goes... And at three, they all started playing their musical instruments and screaming at the top of their lungs. I am dead asleep. And it was the weirdest thing in the world. I was sure I was at my house. And someone was breaking in. I could hear my kids screaming. They sounded like a triangle. Ding, 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 ding. But I could hear them screaming. And I panicked in my confusion. Now, here's the thing. I made a confused face that day. I'm not going to show you it, okay? I made you guys do that, but I'm not going to show you. I was, it was nuts. Here's the thing. When we're confused, we make bad decisions. When we're confused, we lose the ability to to think clearly. When we're confused, we come to wrong conclusions. So I want to I want to work on eliminating confusion. I want to work on this understanding today as we as we move forward to understand the cross. I want to look to the cross of Christ and and understand this completely. And and I'm probably not going to share information that maybe you haven't heard before today. But I want us to understand that the center of Christianity, at the center of Christianity, is a cross. Is Jesus Christ on a cross. I mean, many other things are important. Okay, there are many things that are very important. We could talk about those things. The Bible references them. You know, your marriage, your children, your work life. All those things are important. But at the center is the cross of Christ. 
And we have to keep that at the center or we will be very confused. Let's not be confused this morning. And let our religion, our Christianity, be anything but a cross. And a Savior there, and a Savior off of there, in the ground, raised to life. We must understand that. The world needs this truth. The world needs the truth of Christ. I don't care where you are. I don't care what your religion is. I don't care what your background is. I don't care how much you've heard about Christianity. Every person needs the cross of Christ. God has left us here on this earth as followers of Jesus to take that message to the world. They need Christ. Because at the cross, we see love. We see that God loves us. Individually, corporately, God has a love for us that is beyond our understanding. It's a sacrificial love that He will lay down His life for us. Do not misunderstand the cross. Jesus could have stopped this at any moment, but He would not because of love. Now, here's the truth about the cross. Listen. Pilate didn't put Jesus on that cross. The Roman soldiers didn't put Jesus on that cross. It wasn't Caiaphas. It wasn't Annas. It wasn't the Jewish people. It wasn't the Sanhedrin. What drove Christ to a cross was my sin. My sin. And I'm convinced of this. I'm convinced of this. That if for some reason in the great cosmic plan, God looked down and he saw, wait a minute, the cross doesn't apply to you. He'd die again. That's his love for us. That's his love for us. Fortunately, that's not true. But the cross is truth. But here's another truth. Our sin... It drove us to a need that was met at the cross. But Jesus' deity, who He is and was and will always be, He is God in the flesh. He rose victorious and He lives today. Today, Jesus lives He didn't live before. He lives now. And the Bible says He intercedes for you. That means He prays for you. He is at the right hand of the Father as your advocate. Job says, my Redeemer lives. He says, my skin and my body is going to be wasted away, but my Redeemer lives. So Jesus was victorious. Jesus was victorious. Listen, in just a few days, we get to Good Friday. And we've talked about that over the last couple weeks, what that meant, what the cross looked like, what what the scourging looked like. We've talked about that at length. But we must understand that we serve a risen, victorious Christ today. And in His victory, you and I experience victory as well. So today, we want to eliminate confusion. Because we want to go to the cross of Christ. I want to go to the cross of Christ today. It's not real complicated. It's it's not real complex. But at the cross, we see the love and the compassion of God. 
And I want you to come with me to the cross. And what I want to see happen is you come to the cross and see what Jesus did. That you'll be moved to worship with the simplicity of what Jesus did for us. Now we're going to get there by going to 1 Corinthians. We'll go back to Luke. We've been going through the book of Luke and we're going to go back there briefly today. But I want to start out today in 1 Corinthians. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I want us to understand some things about this cross. I want us to get some things about the cross today from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We had a lot of things on the screen today that people have said about the cross. But all those people that you read about, they're all believers, see. They're all followers of Jesus Christ, so the cross has great meaning to them. But 1 Corinthians chapter 1 tells us some things about the world. And when I say world, I don't mean the big ball that we live on. I mean people who are not followers of Jesus yet. They haven't put their trust in Christ. And so they operate by a different, a different worldview, a different way of thinking. They see things differently. Why? Because they are confused. Listen to what it says. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I'm going to read verse 18 and 23. He says, The word of the cross, for the word of the cross is folly. That's foolishness. That is the, that is the word actually moron, moronic, empty-headed is what it is. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved... It is the power of God. See, the cross is at the center. Get on to verse 23. It says there, verse 22 says, For Jews demand signs, the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to everybody else. Now why is that? Why is that? To the Jewish people, they could not see that their Messiah would die. They couldn't see it. To everybody else who wasn't looking for a Messiah, this is stupid. It's just moronic that your God comes and dies. This is ridiculously stupid. What does this even mean? Oh, it means a great deal. I want to say this, though, about the cross. We need to understand that in the day of Jesus' death, When Jesus died, you need to understand that crucifixion was very common. Very, very common. I mean, the cross of Christ, it's not powerful because of the torment that Jesus went through. It's not powerful because of the injustice of the moment. It's not powerful because Jesus was an innocent man. All those things are true. It was unjust, Jesus was innocent, and it was hostile to those who experienced it. But this went on all the time. All the time. The Persians crucified. Alexander the Great crucified people. The Romans took it to a whole new level. When the Romans came into Jerusalem and ransacked the city for the last time, historians from the day tell us that they crucified so many Jewish people that they ran out of wood. They ran out of wood. 
And they crucified people on the side of homes. Anywhere they could find them, they nailed them to a wall and let them hang there and die. The cross of Christ is the power of God, but not because it was unjust, and not because it was wicked, and not because it was unique. It was none of those things. So what makes it so significant? What makes the cross of Christ so powerful and such good news that we have redefined a word to represent it. We have the word, the gospel. You heard that word before? The gospel. We have four gospels, right? We share the gospel with somebody. What does that mean? Gospel literally means good news. You would come into town and say, Hey everybody, I've got gospel. West Virginia beat Maryland. Yeah? Uh-huh. Or you might come in and say, hey, I'm sorry, I don't have any gospel because Kentucky crushed us, right? Good news. But with the power of Christ on the cross, with what Jesus did on the cross, the concept of the gospel changed. It changed. We have a whole new meaning now. have a whole new meaning. And I want to show you that meaning, all right? Go in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we see what this cross represents. Paul here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is really making a defense for Christianity. He is trying to explain that Christianity is the only way to God. Christ is the only way to God. And one of those, or maybe the essential evidence in all of that is that Jesus Christ rose from the grave and lives, and he lives today, the resurrection of Christ. So as Paul is moving towards that argument of explaining that Christ resurrected, conquering death, conquering sin, conquering Satan, proving he is God, along the way, he defines for us what the good news is. Look look with me at verse number 3. Of chapter 15. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So Paul is saying, I'm going to tell you what's been told to me. And it is of first importance. It is the highest priority. It is the center of our relationship with God. It is the center of our life. And it's this. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, and then to the Twelve, and that He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Now that might not sound like much, but that message there in that, those two, three, four verses has changed Many, many people. It has changed your calendar. It has changed your, many of your lives. It has changed all of cultures. It has changed how people are treated. It has changed how people are taken care of. And it is the gospel. And I want to walk through it just briefly 
so we understand what it means. First of all, it starts with a cross. That Jesus Christ took our sin. Notice he said that Jesus died for our sins. The Gospel starts there at the cross. The Bible has a lot of ways that it describes this transaction that occurred. There's many different expressions that different authors of the New Testament use to try to explain what happened at the cross. When you have God of the universe, sinless, purity, holy, never sinned, unable to sin, made everything, and you've got man and woman, people, sinners from birth, intent on rebelling against God, that the Bible says we can do nothing good on our own. But yet at the cross, the two come together. And the perfect God-man takes upon Himself the sin of all of mankind. Listen to how the different authors try to explain it. First Peter says this, He Himself bore our sins in His body on a tree. This bore our is like taking a, like a backpack and throwing it up on your back and carrying it. He bore our sins. He carried our sins. Mark says this, that Jesus Christ gave His life as a ransom for many. So now we have this idea of an exchange made that the life of Christ is given in death so that we could live. And that Jesus' life now becomes ours. There's this exchange that occurs. And then Paul also explains it in Galatians this way. That Jesus Christ became a curse for us. He became a curse. Now think about what that means. I find it very interesting. You know, every word is inspired. Every word is chosen by the Spirit of God. It did not say in Galatians 3.13 that Jesus took our curse no, and, I mean, that could be true, but that's not what it said. It said he became, he became, so there's an exchange that happened here, a curse for us. Jesus Christ himself, in taking on our sin, became a curse. What love? What love? That you and I sin against the holy God. And Jesus Christ comes to earth, the only one who could do this. There's no other substitute. There is no other name under heaven by which men may be saved except for the name of Jesus Christ. There is no other way. This is the only way that anyone in any land is ever going to be saved. Is that Jesus Christ become their curse for them. So 1 Corinthians starts out there. That Christ died for our sins. It says, in accordance with Scriptures. And what this means is, God had been explaining this literally for over a thousand years. He'd been explaining this was going to happen. And for that thousand years, people had been believing on this one who would come. Sometimes people ask me, Pastor Lowe, scratch your head, how do people get saved before Jesus came to earth? 
they'll say, I get it now. I get it. I'm like looking backward at Jesus. Okay, he died 2,000 years ago. I get that. And I'm looking backward, and he died for me. Okay, in the past, he died for my sins, so I don't have to die. He died for me, and now I live. I get that. But tell me, Lowell, what about these guys? The cross comes long after them. How are they saved? Do they have to, like, follow the law? Do they have to be really good boys and girls? They have to help old ladies across the street. What do they do? Folks, the gospel has always been the same. You and I look back. They look forward. Jesus Christ has always been the only way for people to come to God. He became a curse for Lowell McDonald. He became a curse for Abraham. He became a curse for Billy Graham. He became a curse for Moses. He became a curse for you. Jesus died for sins. Secondly, He took on our sin, that is. Secondly, we go to the tomb. We go to the tomb. The tomb is very significant. The tomb of Christ is very significant. We're going to look in just a minute what, what happened with the tomb, but you need to know that it matters. 1 Corinthians 15, look what it says. After it says that he died in accordance with scriptures, that he was buried. That Jesus was buried. That's important for us to know. Because what it means is that Jesus died. He died. He really, truly gave up his spirit and his physical body experienced physical death. At that moment, he stayed dead for three days. Let me tell you what happened to the thieves. Remember when Jesus left and right are two thieves. Now, I don't know this for a fact, but if they're like any other person crucified in that day, they ripped them from the cross and they threw them into a public dump and there their body decayed. But that's not what happened to Jesus. You say, well, why? What's the big deal with that? Jesus was taken down from the cross and taken to a rich man's tomb and placed there by several individuals. What does that matter? What does that even matter? Well, number one, it fulfills Scripture that said this would happen. But secondly, it's this. Today, you could go to that tomb you and I could, I mean, we don't know exactly where it's at. But we could, could conceivably go to that tomb. And there is no body. There is no body. Jesus truly died. You say, well, how do you know he really died, Lowell? How do you know? Well, let me tell you a story. When I was a math teacher, I used to teach math, taught math for six years at Hedgeville High School. And I, I do math problems in front of the board, okay? Remember that? And I'm telling you, I can do, I can solve any algebra equation that exists. You would be amazed at my ability to solve algebra equations. I mean, if it's an algebra equation, I can solve it. That's right. Yeah. Maybe I'm boasting. People in focus group don't struggle with envy, okay? But I can solve any algebra equation. And sometimes kids would say to me, they'd be like, Mr. McDonald. Yes. You have a question about my algebra equation solving ability? Go ahead. How do you 
you're so good at this. How, how, can you, how can you solve these things? And how can you like do this math in your head? And you, know, you just like know the answer. Like, how do you do it? And I would say, listen, for five years, I've been doing algebra equations every day, all day. I'm an expert. It's what I do. I'm an expert algebra equation solver. It's what I do all day, every day. I stand here and I solve algebra problems. So don't be impressed. If you solved algebra equations every day, all day, you'd get pretty good at it too, right? What's the point? You know who stood there at the feet of Jesus and said, Yep, he's dead. Expert Roman executioners. It's what they did every day, all day. It's all they ever did. And their life and their means were dependent upon it. They came to the Roman soldiers and they, the Jewish leaders did. They said, hey, we don't want the bodies on the cross. It's Passover. We don't want them down there. So can you please hurry this up? And the Roman soldier said, sure, man. I do this all day, every day. I know exactly what to do. They get this great big hammer. And they go up to the crucified man or woman who's now nailed with one foot, where both feet is through one nail, and hands hanging here. And they come up to their legs, right below their kneecaps, and they swing that giant hammer and break all four bones in two. And now what happens is your bone is supposed to be like this, and now it's like this. And so when you push against that nail to bring yourself up to get another breath of air, the bones slide further this way, and you cannot fill your lungs with air, and so you suffocate. They said, hey guys, hurry this along, will you? And they brought their giant hammer over and they snapped the legs of the left-hand thief and they snapped the legs of the right-hand thief and we are told that when that would happen, death occurred in a matter of minutes. A matter of minutes. And now they come to the center cross. All of Jerusalem is in an uproar over this one that's hanging there. Above him is a sign written in three different languages. The king of the Jews. That is no mistake. Pilate did that as a slap into the Pharisee's face. But in reality, it's a message to all of us today. He is the king of the Jews for all people, all nations, all tongues. And they looked at him. And they said, no need. He's dead. And then to make doubly sure... See, once in a while, I'll solve an equation, and I'm like, "Uh, I'm not sure if this is the answer. And I had the teacher's book, see. Four sevens, nailed it. Well, for them, it is big sword. I'm sorry, big spear. And they come in, and right between the lungs, I'm sorry, between the ribs, they would push that spear into his side. And what they're looking for, because they're experts, is a large amount of water and blood. And that meant that he was dead. Jesus died for our sins. 
He took on our sins and he was buried. And now all of creation groans, groans as we wait. And Satan, who is real, and all the demonic forces who are real, think they've won a victory. Because the one who would come and smash the head of the serpent is now in a tomb. Back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day. That is so quick and it's just so fast. He was raised. Three words and just go right by him. But think about what this means. He was dead, and now he's alive. I don't know how it happened. I don't know what God did. I'm not sure, you know, did God do like CPR or Matt? I'm not sure what happened. But somehow, Jesus is dead, and he stands up, and he's alive. Oh, it's great news. Paul says, if this isn't true, our faith is empty. It is futile. It is worthless. If you come to the conclusion that Jesus didn't resurrect, walk away from Christianity. Because it means nothing without the resurrection. It's not a set of principles to live by. It's not a set of ideas that bring you success in life. That is all a bunch of garbage. It is the cross. And Jesus dying there and going into a tomb and raising victorious. Folks, that's the gospel. And listen to what Paul says later on in another book. He says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Good news that we can receive this gift. You know, I've been in Luke for a while, so let's go back there to wrap up our time. If you got your Bible, go back to Luke, chapter 23. We've got several people here who respond to the cross in different ways. They respond to the cross in different ways. You've got these witnesses that have, that have seen what just occurred. I'm just going to read over this and just think about these different ways people responded Verse 47 of chapter 23. Now, when the centurion, he's the one who's overseeing all this process, saw what had happened, place, what had taken place, he praised God. He said, certainly, this man was innocent. Now, we don't know if this centurion put his trust in Jesus or not. I don't know. He knew he was righteous, though. I think it's possible that this was the very first convert to Christianity after the resurrected of Christ. Possibly. Could have been. I don't know for sure. Verse 48. And all the crowds had assembled for this spectacle. When they saw what had taken place, they had returned home beating their breast. They're moved. They're moved as well. Verse 49. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance and they watched these things like they're confused. What's going on? But then there's this guy named Joseph. And I want to just end with him. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. 
He was a member of the council. He was a good and righteous man. Now what this means is significant. This doesn't mean that he followed the law. He's called righteous here. He was that Old Testament guy looking forward to the Messiah that would come. He had not consented to their decision and action, it says in verse 51. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. Look what this man does. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down. He wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb, cut in stone, where no one had ever been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Significant. The women saw the tomb and how it was laid. Those women are going to see that empty tomb in just a couple days. It's significant to see that they're there. They see the tomb. And they returned and prepared spices and ointments. And on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. I want to just focus your attention on this man Joseph, though. You see... If there was any confusion in his heart, it left that day. It left that day. And he made a simple request. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Christ, that he might place it in a tomb. Well, my question for you is this. We've talked about the cross today. We've seen that Jesus died for our sins. That he went in the tomb and really, really died. He was gone and resurrected to life. So what are you going to do with this? Joseph's confusion was gone. And he looked to the risen Christ as a Savior and responded. What about you? What about you? Is it possible that God's pride in your spirit today? Is there a potential that right now God is saying to you, this is true. Jesus took your sin. Jesus died in your place. Jesus rose victorious. Now just ask Him. Just ask Him to save you. You recognize you're a sinner. You turn to Christ, receive what He did. And that cross is yours. And your curse is His. The great exchange occurs. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I do want to just stop now for a moment. Give people an opportunity to respond. Lord, it's very possible that there's somebody here who needs to respond to the Gospel. So Lord, just help them now in faith, to pray. Now listen, if that's you, here's what you need to do. There's nothing magical about your words. You just let your heart pour out to God. Tell Him you know you're a sinner. Just tell Him that in your own way. Tell Him that you know that He died for your sin. Tell Him that. And then communicate the best way you know how in your heart to the Lord that you want to receive His forgiveness. Lord Jesus, 
Thank you for your salvation. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.